Welcome to Leadership Line of Sight. My name is Taylor and I am the host as well as the marketing strategist at Gravidia. And today is a special day. Uh, when I come in contact with amazing entrepreneurs um, and just the remarkable minds, uh, for years and years, I've done these things called curiosity meetings. And it's so funny because some of the people I talk to are fairly high profile and like an assistant will give me 30 minutes. And then we'll end up having a three-hour phone conversation while they push appointments to continue the engagement. That's a little bit of what's behind Leadership Line of Sight. And it's a little bit of what's behind a lot of the things that happen in my life and why I love entrepreneur adventure. And one of the major sources of my entrepreneur adventure has been my relationship with Chandra Devam. She is the CEO of ErisMD, which is a game-changing augmented and virtual reality company that honestly, when you uh, think about what could change medicine to the same degree of magnitude that mobile navigation changed car travel, like think about driving before maps. And then remember that every year we lose a city in North America, the size of Atlanta to people that make medical error. Mm -hmm. Welcome to Leadership Line of Sight, Chandra. It's such a pleasure to have you here today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for that generous intro. Um, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah. Uh, it's a good week. And uh, I even just thinking about like the introduction of uh, you coming on to talk to us here. I love the idea that I get to share this. So many of my yeah. curiosity meetings, like, do you remember the first time we met? I do. Yeah. It was in the coffee shop. I think I gave you more than a half an hour, but I did. It did end up being a couple of hours. And I ended up telling my business partner, who generally isn't a, a people person to come down because I'm like, I think you'll like this person. Come join. Um, yeah, I do. Yeah. So that was like uh, looking back on what's happened since then. Uh, mm -hmm. I see this as this crazy moment where I go and meet Chandra and Scott. They're fresh from TechCrunch just flown yeah, back yeah. into Canada and uh, we meet at a coffee, like a cafe that I I've been to a fair amount of times, but that time I put on a visor and I looked at Scott's MRI inside of his head. And that oh, was a new demo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was just amazing uh, because we ended up streaming a little bit on yeah. how like, uh, I guess more so how we approach things and it, it felt great. But I want to, so that was like this huge impact point. Now let's roll back from there. Mm -hmm. Of all the problems that you could have chosen to, to attempt to solve, why this? Okay, that's an interesting question because we were looking for a project. Um, and you probably sort of know the answer to this, but, but I'll go through it. Um, we were at CES and that year we'd exited from another startup um, and we're looking for a project. And this is when Google Glass had just come out and um, Facebook had just announced, I think, um, the Meta, which is now Meta, um, 
and and VR had come come about again, and I th- thought that was interesting. I remember early in the '90s when VR was starting to hit the market, and I was really excited. And I thought this is going to be a game changing thing. This is going to be how people do real estate. You know, um, I don't know if you remember that movie, The Lawnmower Man. It was all over media. Virtual reality was was the big thing. This was the next big thing. Um, the problem was the technology wasn't quite there yet, um, so we couldn't run it. So, from what I understand, of people in the industry back then to put a VR headset on was like putting a ton of bricks on your head because the batteries were so big and the, the processors were so big. So when this came about, I was like, that's really interesting. I think the first um, aspects of it that are going to hit and the first verticals will be media and gaming. Um, I didn't really want to put my energy there. Um, we could have, but I thought let's do something more interesting. I thought education and um, medicine was a good um avenue. I'd had a recent like medical experience that opened my eyes up to some things. And um, that ended up being an imaging company, not just we ended up starting in that vertical and then realizing that this had applications all over the place. So yeah, I don't know if that did that answer you? It did. And Scott did a great job of talking a little bit about uh, the solve for surgery, right? But when you were saying that you started out in imaging and then all of a sudden you discover some verticals, Mm -hmm. you not only run a game-changing startup, how many startups do you mentor or have contact with? Are we talking dozens or hundreds? That's a good question. Um, Dozens to hundreds. Uh, It depends. (laughs) Sometimes I have a one-on-one meeting once with people and they just need like a, a... a little bit of mentoring, but I'm always open to talking to people. Plus, you know, we have our, our school program, which is hundreds of kids. And I hope to, to mentor them into a field in technology. So depends how you look at that, but. I'm well, I remember uh, hearing how Skylabs talked about you. Yeah. Skylabs Innovation is something that like probably one of my favorite podcasts that we've done having those wonderful ladies on that I hear are just doing fantastic since then. Yeah, I loved um, Skylabs is great. They were actually an SI tech company that was just a little early. I actually think they could have won it had they had their patents in place. But so good to see such young minds saying, look, where the, where's a problem and what's a solution I can apply to it? Um, we have a couple other kind of youngish ones, but yeah, they have a special place in my heart. It's almost like you're um, Professor Xavier and you're putting together this <laughs> like University of Mutants with special powers. God, that's my dream. <laughs> <laughs> the people that uh, I've come in contact with through you, um, yeah. many guests on this podcast, it's interesting to see all of them and like the superpowers you see inside of them. Mm-hmm. Is that your superpower? I don't know. Is that my superpower? Well, I have to say that like some people have goals and some people yeah. can see goals in other people. Mm-hmm. But it's almost like you view people as startups and you can see some verticals that they don't see. That is some interesting insight, Taylor. I think that you're not incorrect there. Um, I think I approach problems and people similar. Um, so I, I see problems as startups. And yeah, I do think I see things in people that they don't necessarily see in themselves. Um, that's quite a compliment. Thank you. Well, it's been interesting to me, like, um, as like, also as a friend, I remember talking to Kira Blackwell and how she talks about you, you know, when you think about like who you are as a person now, mm-hmm. at what point did it become normal in your life to have somebody who's like a former director of NASA, uh, talk about 
basically the incredible work you do. Oh, that's sweet. I, I, when did it become normal? Um, it's, I don't know if it's normal. It's still, I'm still pretty bashful when people are, are complimenting me, but I'd say I knew Eris was a success when we were right after, right before I met you. Um, we had gone down to TechCrunch with our beta and it was just basically to kick tires and see like, is the industry interested in this? How do people respond? So we got a small booth and, um, we had some pretty high profile people coming through there and saying, here's my card, let's talk. Um, and we actually were the busiest booth at, at TechCrunch that year. So that was the first point I knew Eris was a success and Eris was getting, um, attention that, uh, I guess you would call high profile. Um, and then we came back here. <laughs> I guess I told you all about it. <laughs> yeah. And it was neat because like I've had some times to actually travel with Eris to places like mm-hmm. Augmented World Expo and mm-hmm. South by Southwest and seeing like how you are received by mm-hmm. the people that have massive credibility uh, in that uh, space. That was also something that was really interesting to me. Um when you see the other startups moving around, I imagine that those that you mentor, you look at them as though they're moving through stages. Can you yeah. talk to me a little bit about how you see startups, like those people that are maybe thinking about thinking that they are working on something, seeing the steps makes it so much more clear. Yeah. Well, I'll talk about like, and the questions are, are more um, revealing to me and where they're at. So the common questions I get with like first meetings are um, like, how do I start? So you've got a startup that's concept phase, like, hey, I have a great idea. What do I do with this? Um, like, I think everybody's been in a situation where you've been out for drinks or, or been out with friends. And like, I have this great idea for an app. Um, and then 10 years later, that person's like, oh, I had that idea. Look, it happened. So um, I always say to people, okay, well, what do you want to do with that? So my first advice usually is to patent it. Um, well, to incorporate a company just like through Rocket Lawyer, get an incorporation. Um, I like Delaware. Then to patent it and then to either co-found with somebody technical, if it's a technical idea, or or get somebody technical that'll build it, um, and then get some sort of proof of concept. You can approach investors at that stage, but I, I think it's better for the company and equity if you have a concept, at least, or a beta that you can say, hey, look, this is, this is my problem. Here's the problem. This is my solution. Are you interested in investing? Um, so there's concept stage, fundraising stage, second fundraising stage, maybe acquisition stage or joint venture stage, um, depending on on the startup and the road they're looking to go down. Are you building it for acquisition? If you are, investment's going to be easier to get. If you're building it because you want to own the next Google, that's a different startup. If you're building it to sell to Google, that's an easier startup. (laughs) And that's like the race that all these tech companies or startups are in is to say, okay, have you made something that's valuable? Does mm-hmm. it have a target market fit? And then in that market, on your way to like, essentially on your way to market, is yeah. there going to be uh, one of these giant companies that may look at you at acquisition because it's easier for them than trying to make what you'd made? Yeah, why well, compete if we can just buy you and say built in-house, right? Um, and and you know you're a good startup when larger companies want to buy you. That's that's actually a validator for you. Um, 
The other thing is you see a lot of, so sometimes I say to people, tell me two ideas. Um, Cause people will be like, I have this great idea that solves this major problem for three people in the world. And like, that's brilliant. That's great. Problem is your market is three people. You're not going to find investors for three people. You need to have an, a 3 billion people is more like the market you want. Um, so there's been an occasion where I've done that and I'm like, focus on that idea. Um, that's a great idea. Sometimes the first idea is like, you know, three people on the next idea, they're like, oh, well, I had this other one for 3 billion. So looking at market size as well, um, being that we're in Canada, I often tell Canadian companies to look at the American market. Canada is just not big enough. This isn't where you want to capture. You want to capture a lar- large market. The population in Canada is like, oh, I don't want to offend Canadians by saying this wrong, but about the size of California or half of California, it's not very big. Um, so go after California first and then, you know, New York and Colorado and all the other ones, right? Texas. I don't want to miss any of the wrong states there. I've I've stepped in it. (laughs) Yeah. So when it comes down like that, like imagine all the Canada's in population you could do just by going to the states that you mentioned and, uh, and becoming relevant because let's say that you might be relevant to 3 billion people, but there would only be like one out of a hundred that would choose you. Mm. that still could be a profitable company. But a lot of times there, if you can find these like amazing gaps, you can actually look at like some companies become incredibly dominant. Yeah. You want to, you want to, when you're looking at your numbers um, and valuing your company, you want to look at about 2%, 1. 1.5, 2% market capture overall. Um, that's pretty good numbers. And if the numbers there are good, then, then you're good to go. It's always good. Now after doing Eris, I'd say having more than one vertical is also good. Um, so writing your patents in such a way that doesn't define just to one market. Um, so we wrote our patents. We didn't limit it to um, medical, for example, which was really helpful to us when we started talking to NASA and in the mining sector or, you know, the v- vehicle inspection sector. Like it, it's good we didn't limit it to people. Um, okay. I want to I yeah. want to kind of unpack that for a second. So <clears throat> when you were originally starting with uh, Eris, mm-hmm. it was directly into the medical yeah what was the first glimmer focused. that there was something outside of that well to to the first now this is going to be a hilarious story for anyone in the aerospace uh, sector um i think you were with us when when we first saw it so we were at um awe which is augmented world expo i think um and honeywell came by yeah. and I'm in Canada. So they're like, not a thermostat company. Thermostat. I thought they were th- yeah, I thought they were a thermostat company. And they kept coming by and bringing more people. And, you know, these were like, I feel like they were from somewhere in the South because they had an accent. And they were like, I remember them being holy effing S. Like, oh, I'm so sorry, ma'am. I was like, okay, it's okay. These thermostat guys are real excited. Um and then Amy was like, no, no, Honeywell's a big like defense contractor. Like a major, major defense contractor. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. But at the same time, Da Vinci was coming by. The uh, Well, I forget the... the Massive the medical were, conglomerate. Uh, I don't know that they are, they're, but they're a robotic medical conglomerate of some kind, right? Um, so they had my attention, but I was a little bit like, why are these Honey, Honeywell guys interested? So then we had a book launch we were doing with Charlie Fink at South by Southwest. So we were planning to come down. You were you at that South by? Um maybe. I, I don't know. Was, <laughs> uh, was that the South by that we made finals at? 
Uh, no, next year. So the, yeah, so the I next wasn't year, the first one. Okay, the next year we were at um, South by. We were planning to do a book launch, and um, so there was this like NASA iTech thing that I think Sam sent us. Um, Sam Wolf, hi Sam. Um, and it was I wasn't sure it was NASA. Like it was like a pitch. I thought it was a pitch to pitch to NASA, and we we're like, well, we're going to be at South by. Might as well put in a white paper, um, and we made finals for it. And I really wasn't giving it much attention because I didn't think it was NASA. Um, and I'm sure Kara told this story. Um, and then it was NASA. And uh, Scott, I think, went and did it because I was busy, like, focused on the book launch. And I got a call from him saying, you know, you should come down. And NASA NASA was pretty interested. We ended up winning. Um, and that was really when I was like, oh, this has a lot of other capabilities because they basically said, um, if you can do this for a person with, um, medical CT, couldn't you do this for a jet with industrial CT and, you know, you know, diagnose a jet the same way. And, and I said, yeah, that's a good point. And being that we grew up in the, in the oil patch, I should have considered industrial x-ray, industrial <laughs> CAT scan. Cause that's used here. Um, but I didn't. So that was the first time I saw a different vertical. I think I knew that there was some other, I mean, medical school, veterinarian, you know, I knew there were some other verticals, but that was the first time that it was something very different than looking inside a body. Um, yeah. To recap, um, yeah. with the Aris technology, it has a software that will essentially render all of these DICOM images like CT, mm -hmm. MRI, uh, X-ray into virtual reality in perfect replication. Yeah, in 3D. So, you know, what, and, and it doesn't actually, so we ended up moving it past um, um, augmented reality or virtual reality, and we can just do it on a 2D screen with a mouse to be able to, you know, um, interact with it just to make it even more accessible to a wider audience. But, um, so when you have a CT done or a CAT scan, well, <laughs> a CT being a CAT scan or an MRI, um, they slice the image up. So they take the image and then they slice it up every four to one millimeters. They take an image capture of that. And that's what they look at. And all the other data is thrown away. Um, so what we essentially do is look at the whole thing. So yes, I knew we could do that for horses. I knew we could do that for people. I knew there were some other verticals, cadavers for medical school, but I hadn't considered, you know, a car, a jet, um, a, a pipeline. I hadn't considered those things. <laughs> but even in that realm, yeah, being able to verify the integrity of something without taking it apart, yeah, that like it's tough to be able to see how valuable that is from the outside. It is until you start talking to people on the inside, and they're like, you know, this is a huge value to us not to have to send a technician into a, a potentially dangerous situation. It's a it's a big time save to just do a scan versus having somebody go through it individually. Um, we started looking at okay, well, what other areas does this have have um, application? That was one of them. But then we started looking at okay, well, a depreciation report on a bridge. What about a depreciation report on like an athlete? What about a depreciation report on an, on a racehorse? Um, so looking at this other vertical ended up giving us more verticals within the space we were already looking at in as well. And this was from medicine to aerospace. And then you mentioned mining. 
Yeah, a little bit of mining. I'm under some some NDA there, so I can't see too much there. But yeah, in, in the mining sector as well, or I, I'll go with pipelines, you know, it's it would be incredibly helpful to be able to see, you know, what's going on with a pipeline. You know, anyone in the oil industry knows that we do industrial x-ray on that. Um, being able to have a better look at that and seeing more information. More information in any industry is better. Um I knew we were going to move towards autonomous radiology um, at some point, like, you know, the diagnostic component of, of um, ARIS was really important to me. And it's interesting because again, looking into these other verticals, when they started pointing things out, it started showing me more verticals within medicine and, and then looking into medicine, more verticals into the other areas because the imaging uses are similar. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. So in this regard, what you were saying is like more information is valuable. Absolutely. And when you slice up images in order to be processed by humans, <clears throat> you end up uh, removing all the parts that you're not sure if they're valuable or not, right? All of those yeah. other slices. Yeah. But then you were also talking about autonomous radiology. And mm. I remember reading this. Uh, um, it was in a book. They were referencing a study that uh, – was talking about radiology tie and how like humans react more when they can see the other human. Mm. They took a series of these scans oh. and they put them through radiologists looking for the primary and secondary issues that could be present here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they took the same group of sp- scans, but let a, an amount of time go by like six or eight months so that w- w- they wouldn't recognize the fact that they were looking at the same scans because they would have right. looked thousands in the between. And then this time when they resubmitted the scans, they put their Facebook profile pictures with them. To humanize them. Massively improved the amount of primary, secondary, and suddenly there were also tertiary elements that they were catching because they could identify these people as people. Mm -hmm. Now, when you're talking about autonomous radiology, it probably wouldn't have that same variance. So it probably wouldn't. Well, it's at the start, it would. That's very interesting. I hadn't considered that before. I didn't know that study. Um, I mean, it would at the start because, you know, you would work with radiologists and showing them the 3D scans instead of the sliced up ones. So they would see the person versus, you know, this is a slice of a brain and that might humanize it. Um, that's an interesting study. Show, send that to me after because I will awesome. include that in some of my <laughs> proposals. But um I think that human error, like you said, we lose a city the size of Atlanta every year to human error and medical, avoidable medical error. Um, it's just there. Uh, and, and you know, we're talking about cars driving themselves. Um, we should be talking about, you know, uh, surgeries driving themselves <laughs> and diagnostics driving themselves. Like I got kids that are five and seven and I don't really <laughs> believe that they're going to drive cars. No, I don't think so either. And My I think favorite the movie when I was little was Herbie, and it's real now. Yeah, and the, like I have a car that has autonomous drive, and it's it goes oh, well. Do you have one? Yeah, well, the idea like what it sees all the time, and it's always monitoring. Like even mm-hmm. if you're driving the way you're supposed to, you're supposed to check your mirrors, right? Yeah, and those well, are seconds that other things could be happening. That's right. So coming from the car industry, seeing how it's been progressed, uh, especially in luxury cars with their accident avoidance. With the yeah. little lights that come on indicating that the robots have already noticed somebody in your blind spot, mm-hmm. your blind spot, mm-hmm. it belongs to you. 
Right. You know, whereas it's not a blind spot for these other elements. And what you're saying is in uh, radiology, if you could teach the machines, if you could help experts help the machines recognize, they would be so good at recognizing that this would be a game changer. And when you think about like trying to detect early Mm -hmm. with something that's got robot eyes, how early could you go? I mean, how long is a piece of string? Probably at the start when you have sub-millimeter accuracy. Um, when you're looking at all of the information, you can catch it so early. If we're talking about just cancer, like a cancer cell is pretty small, but you can start to see it replicating. Um, an aneurysm, all, all kinds of things. Like, I know that people, and just being in, in as a patient myself, you know, kind of the things that cross your mind when you go in or you're having surgery is like, I hope the surgeon, there's, there's the perfect days they say to go and have surgery because the surgeon is better rested. And you hope they don't have personal things going on in their life. That's going to distract them. And, um, you try to be extra polite to them. And, and I know that's one of the reasons people have a hard time advocating for themselves in the medical industry, because they don't want to be rude and seen as a problem and, and they, and not, and that'll affect their care. If we didn't have those issues, um, and I think you pointed it out to me in this framework that, you know, surgeons are really cutting and blind. Like if you have all of these things that aren't against you, you have such a, um, opportunity for success. And healthcare can jump forward so much further um, if we're not relying just on human capabilities. Um, and we're, we're allowing technology in to assist where we have some, some, I don't like to say failure, but um, measure for failure, at least. Um, it, it, it can take us really far. So you know, did I see all of this at the start of Eris? Some of it. But as I started to go into it, I saw more of the issues and more more of the opportunity for a solution for us. Um, I was talking to a friend recently whose mother passed away of a really rare cancer. Um, and it's so rare. They haven't really even been able to study what solutions work for it. Um, when you point machine learning at that, you start to get some better outcomes. Um and, and, you know, we also have these areas where people are operating individually. So hospitals aren't necessarily, and this isn't true of everywhere, but, you know, sharing all of the information, whereas a computer can do that and be like, look, I've looked at so many cases here. This is pretty likely that it's this type of cancer. This cancer looks a little bit like this cancer. Maybe this solution would work for it. Um, the sad part on that story is that, that per, the friend of mine wasn't told that you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a different outcome that could have happened for their family member. That's not something the doctors thought to tell him. So he'd been, you know, worrying about, could I have done something different? And I finally said, you know, I, I talked to some oncologists, there's no outcome here. It was so rare. This hasn't even been studied. Um, so I think that that there's something there too, with patient engagement and patient information that could be expanded on. A lot of questions I get with this is, okay, well, then what's going to happen to doctors? Um, how is this going to disrupt medicine? Um, where are we going to, are we going to lose the human element of it? And I think actually we have an opportunity to have a better human element here. You'll have people who are, doctors might become the, the curator of care where they're the person sitting at your bedside. And maybe that becomes a therapist or somebody who's really talking to you about your emotional needs in a hospital versus, you know, what your medical ones, if a computer or a robot or is handling the medical aspects of it. 
Um, so Wait I actually, one second. <laughs> sorry, I'm going. I had my coffee. Go on. No, this is like all right. So I, I just I have to stop here for a second. Yeah. So let's just call it what it is. Mm-hmm. We are all now cybernetic. Everybody feels handicapped the moment they lose their phone. They can't pay for things yep. like maybe not even get into their car, like all kinds of things like that. If so we social agree yeah. that we are teams of humans and computers trying to achieve goals together, right? So when a lot of people think about humans and robots working together, like they think of like Mech Warrior. Yeah. Well, or they think it's like what was that Will Smith movie? Like like it's a war against us and them. But yeah, you know, yeah, like the one with the ro- I robot. I robot, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so the um so when they're they're looking at it from that perspective, but they don't understand what it would look like if it was a team. Yeah. And so let's say that one of the major functions of a surgeon right now is the ability mentally to take 2D information and extrapolate that to 3D results. Mm-hmm. Right? And also the the almost engineer type mind that we see in some of these great experts does not translate to client care at all. Right. right? Bedside so manner. You made right? the robot be the robot and do a lot of these types of elements where the accuracy wouldn't depend on things like when they had lunch or if anything was happening at home. Are they having a divorce? They yeah. kids and they didn't sleep well last night. All of these things coming into a play. So now if you got that part taken care of, yeah. How did it change this other part that we don't really give any attention to right now? Which I think Maybe needs our attention. A therapist that's there with a medical background that can actually help you make the best decisions yeah. about the options related to like your medical care or your surgery. Like it would totally game change if you split those two the way that you're suggesting. And and somebody who's there for the family saying, you know, this isn't your fault. There isn't something else that could have happened here. Or, you know, you're doing the best you can. And this is really helpful what you're doing for your family member, even though they're not saying thank you. They're in a different process right now. And trust me, it's appreciated. Um, and and it's interesting because and this isn't this isn't like a studied statistic. Or I don't know the statistics on this. I just know that it's common to hear somebody say, well, his, his bedside manner isn't good, but he's a great surgeon. And there may, may be a personality type that's drawn to that, or, or as you were saying, um, an engineering mind that, that's drawn to that, that doesn't have that same social um, IQ. Yeah, like IQ and EQ, right? Yeah, yeah. That that I think it's better to have people in a hospital that that have that emotional empathy and can sit with someone and say, "What do you need? It, do you just need someone to sit with you and play cards or or whatnot?" So I think hospitals could end up being a very nurturing environment. It's going to be like Patch Adams combined with like Baymax yeah. from like Big Hero. Yes. Right? And I think that that's something that people don't see the possibility for. You know, when you take a look at how technology reduces in price over time, if you're like, okay, we have this much money to spend on making people stay alive. Yeah. Why wouldn't you look at it differently? Instead Mm -hmm. of saying like, oh, you know, what's going to happen to the doctors and the nurses? Say like, what could happen? Instead of focusing on the gap, focus on the gain. Yeah. And there's there's, there's a gap. There's a solution that can come in. Yeah, and it could get to a point where, you know, the yearly checkup that nobody wants to do. Mm -hmm. Would they go if they could simply get a scan and have uh, machine learning detect anything that could roughly be a problem and then talk to a GP about what the options would be for those results? Yeah. 
right? Like the like this is something a depreciation that could report. Although maybe that's a negative as a marketer, you might not like me using that in <laughs> <And> people. <laughs> a depreciation report on people? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The uh, <laughs> well, maybe we should start doing health checkups on buildings. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's uh so that's something that's very interesting. Now, as like when you were talking about the steps as you were moving forward, you're like register yeah. a corporation. Mm -hmm. Uh you were talking about uh then about patents. So this is something where you have like a uh vast expertise. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's like, uh, are you not the patent author behind the companies that you work with? Um, I have quite a few patents. Yes. Yes. And so I think that that's something that's hidden from a lot of people that are looking to get in startup culture. Mm -hmm. Like the, like, what is your, I guess, what, would what, what, where do startups make mistakes when it comes to intellectual yeah. property? That's a good question. Um, it depends where the startup's situated, but because I'm currently sitting in Canada, we'll talk about here. Um, Canada, for some reason, was given the message that software was impatentable <laughs> and patents aren't very important. And actually, um, the way patent law is practiced here is different than the rest of the world. So I would suggest you... Um, this is un-Canadian of me, but it's business forward of me. Um, you incorporate in the US and you do your PCT filing through there. It's cheaper and, and the patent lawyers are um, better suited for it. This is the startup um, equivalent of put the mask on yourself before you put the mask on anyone else. Yeah. Well, and, and <laughs> Make sure you survive and then you can come back and help Canada. <laughs> And I'm trying. <laughs> yes. Um, so I would say that the, the biggest mistakes first is that people try to see, they spend a lot of business um, time doing like market feasibilities studies and looking at those aspects. And let's try the, try the product out and see if people are interested. I think people need to have confidence in if you see a problem and you see a solution that, that's better than the current solution, can be done cheaper than the current solution, have some confidence that people will buy that, patent that, then see how it does. Um, so they, I, I see them spending money in the wrong places with that. Um, so a mm. provisional patent's like 1500 maybe fifteen to 5000 depending. I filed a really large patent our first time. And it, by I, I mean Scott and I. It wasn't just me, but... Um, I definitely added a lot of pages in there. So um, it's $5,000 at the most, um, plus incorporating with Rocket Lawyer, which is maybe like a couple hundred dollars. That is the best money you'll have ever spent because you protected your IP. Then when you go and talk to people about it, you don't have to worry about them ripping you off and you owing them licensing in the future. And I think this is also like a litmus test. So when we're talking about, can you see something that you can recognize as making a solution for, and is it, is it valuable? Meaning yeah. what someone have to buy it for and what they get from it, there's yeah. a gap that's value. Mm -hmm. Now, when you see the market for that, <laughs> circling back to what you were saying before, if you oh, could no. catch one to 2% of like yes. a three of a 400 million person market, which is like North America, Right. If you could do that, well, now it makes sense to spend this money. There's a return on that. You can see if you move forward. And so if you don't feel as though you could be ready to spend $6,000 on this, mm -hmm. what's your second idea, right? Yeah. Hmm. 
that's or you know hard. even I wouldn't even go that far if if it's a better solution that's currently there and you think you've you know you you've looked at a problem that is is applicable to a large group that you're going to have a pretty good market grasp on um just run with it and see how it goes. Um, I also would say don't take advice from people who have not done it. A lot of people want to give advice on things they should not give advice on. Um, so there's there seems to be some advice given to say like, well, you know, prove that it's interesting. Like um, build it first, like a beta, so beta or a proof of concept and see how people respond to it and then decide if you you want to patent it. Don't do that. Patent it first, then show it to people. And, you know, when you're talking to investors, especially when you're at a concept stage or a beta stage, having IP is really what they're investing in. Like you need to have some proprietary stuff that people are interested in. You can't just say, well, and that's my other thing that I'd say startups make a mistake with not having proprietary built stuff, because when it's proprietary, meaning, you know, you own it, there's value in that. It means it's not easily replicated. And if it is, you know, that's why you have patents. You need to talk to people about a cease and desist or a licensing um, conversation. You have something there that's yours. So if you don't, and you're just sort of doing a hustle and an app that you might make some money, but you're not going to be a unicorn. You'll be a (laughs) pony. (laughs) So uh, that's something that's kind of interesting. And I want to circle back to that because you were referencing Scott. So Scott is Mm -hmm. the co-founder of Eris. He was on our last episode of Leadership Line of Sight. He is uh, incredible. But Mm -hmm. how do you explain, like, what is your history with Scott Edgar? What is my story you cut out there? Your history. My history. Um, So Scott and I have known each other since we were quite little. Um, Scott was a gifted kid. He gets pretty shy about talking about this, but he's brilliant. Um, and we were both gifted kids that that found a kindred, somebody you could play with, a peer. Um, so it started out being a peer that I could say, hey, you know, I don't think we built You're talking like elementary school age. Yeah, like grade six-ish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, the So you already knew at that point mm. that the way that adults treated you was revealing that um, almost that you were a contender with them, right? Like, how did you know? Yeah, that's true. I'm not going. That was an interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the, like, I, I often find that the people that um, have remarkable minds will get to an age where they start to understand that they have to hide it a bit. Oh, those are two different questions. Okay, yes. Um, yeah, so like, and normally that comes from resistance from adults that adults don't treat them like children, or that they can make adults like unwind, right? Yeah, I would say it's different for boys and girls, um, okay. and it's not popular to gender that right now. But in our, when I was growing up, I saw males, smart, smart males, and smart females treated differently. Um, so they're different questions. I, I. So I'll answer the first one. When I when did I see that um, I could rattle <laughs> adults? <laughs> when did I see adults as peers? Is probably mm. what you're asking. Um, like my teachers, grade two, grade three. I was anyone who's watching this that went to school with me will remember. I mean, I was I was a handful in class, and I would go toe to toe with teachers on some of the knowledge that they were they were teaching. Definitely by grade four, Mrs. Valis, poor Mrs. Valis. Um, 
Although, you know, she could have handled things differently. Um, <laughs> but Miss Lochte, my grade five teacher, um, I, she must be a gifted person. She was really good at like dealing with gifted kids and, and putting the energy where it belonged. Um, so I saw adults as peers, probably grade two, grade one. When did I think I needed to hide my intelligence? I don't know that I found I needed to hide it. I actually felt like I needed to validate it as a child more often where I would answer a question and they'd be like, no, but I, I'd not given it. So the teachers would be looking for you to give back the answer that they, they taught you where I'd put it in my own words and they'd say no. And I'd be like, wait a minute. No, I actually answered that correctly and would debate it with them. Um, that started happening. Grade six, definitely grade seven. Definitely. Uh, okay. For anybody that uh, um, there, there's a moment here that I see repeat itself. Yeah. Because when you were talking about arguing why you were right and why this should be this way, yes. I see fast forward into the future and you sitting down with Kira Blackwell of NASA <laughs> going in NASA iTech for your pitch. Yeah. Like that's the same Chandra. Yeah, that's when I got a confidence in my intelligence, actually. That was that was good for me. Um, and I think the moment that I'd like to yeah. draw on is, is the moment that you said, who are you exactly and who do you report to? Yeah, like I said, well, and she'll tell you, I spoke in their hand in my hip um, and I yelled at her and just said, just who are you, ma'am? And, you know, do you even work with NASA? Can I see some some ID? And she pushed her card over and it said, Kira Blackwell, headquarters NASA. And I said, oh, yes, ma'am, we'll be having a conversation and sat down. <laughs> I think that might be the moment that she like knew she really liked you. Oh, yeah, me too. Me. I love Kira. Yes, yes. That's when me and Kira were like, oh, you're kindred. Because <laughs> she sort of smiled at me and said, there you go. <laughs> so now you have this, like, uh, Chandra that's starting to gain confidence when she's probably a teen. And here yeah. you are uh, with Scott. Yeah. And the two of you are basically the only people that you know that can exchange at your level. Yeah. And both of us had this interesting thing where we we went towards older people. Because you saw um, kids will often have older uh, friends who are gifted because they see maturity. They mistake maturity um, with wisdom and intelligence because, oh, these people know things I know. They must also be smart. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I had a couple of friends that were gifted. But it's too bad because you and I grew up in the same area. So I don't know how I missed finding you. But, um, yeah, he was a peer and, and someone we found, um, within each other. So then we had a couple of businesses when we were little. Um, I was always kind of in entrepreneur mode. Um, my first business was not, uh, how do I put this? I, I think it was called rent a kid where we <laughs> rent myself out as a laborer to the neighbors, <laughs> which was child labor, but you know, mowing lawns or babysitting, but yeah, not the best name for the flyer, but that was the name for the flyer. That's awesome. And <laughs> but, um, you know, when we were like 20, I had an, a flooring install business and then we got into tech. Obviously Scott was always into tech and it's funny when we were younger, it was like, okay, put the computer down. Let's go outside. Stop with the computer. Let's go outside. Um, three point, we did a couple of really successful, oh, I can't talk about one of them, but you know, that, that went into some contracts that were quite successful and jumped us into the, the, um, tech world. I so actually, most of the time for anybody who isn't familiar with this, when somebody can't talk about it, it's uh, it's uh, oh, okay. non-disclosure agreements, yep. which are tied often to uh, deals. Yes. Um, and so when you 
<clears throat> so you were incredibly uh, independent and entrepreneurial. You saw yourself as being able to do anything, especially mm-hmm. with you as a team with Scott, because you brought him into the flooring, uh, <clears throat> uh, into the flooring business. Yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, the two of you kind of connected on saying how, like my understanding of this is you were the one who looks for the problem that can be solved now. I'm not sure that's what we would have called it at 20. At 20, it may have been more like a Pied Piper. Hey, follow me. This might be fun. Um, and But yeah, now after my brain finished developing at 27 or whatever it is, yeah, then it was like, oh, I see the problem solution. Um, well, you choose, choose some great problems. Like one of the companies <laughs> okay. you worked on previously was Drift. Mm-hmm. And just because you could recognize that there was something that could be solved in the hands of everyone. Right. Like the world was moving forward with these uh, keyboards on screens and it was creating issues. Yeah. And well, so Drift wasn't my concept. That was like a contract that we'd pulled up on. And that was Scott's solution. But there was a lot of eating Amici's pizza and figuring out the solution on a whiteboard there with him mm-hmm. <laughs> late into the night. Um, the solution problems that that I think we've approached it's funny, both of us are really like heavy into gaming or we're, it's funny we didn't ever start a gaming company, but that maybe would have been problematic for us because we both like to game too much. It just occurred to me, I was like, it's interesting the problems that we approach aren't common to our interests. I'm not sure what that one's about. I'll have to look at that later. But anyway, sorry, I don't think I quite answered your question. What was your question? When we were talking about like uh, how you choose the problems that you choose Mm. to solve, or a little bit more is what I wanted to do is shed light on how you and Scott work together. Mm. That would be probably better answered by you. Cause you know, I, Scott and I have such a familiar relationship that, that it would be hard for me to analyze that. So why don't you answer that? How do Scott and I work together? Kind of like weird twins. <laughs> like the, uh, you guys definitely have a uh, quite a bit of your own language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, you can also see that you totally defer to each other in your strengths. Yeah. Like the, uh, there's not a lot of like, you know how well you work together. Like you, you know how you work together so well that you don't overlap every, any time you can choose not to. And, uh, that's, and then the other thing is I find that what Scott likes is finding the hardest puzzles. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like you're the adventurer that goes and finds the puzzles. Yeah, I'm definitely the person who got us into trouble when we were little. Not always, but yeah, that's true. <laughs> like, let's get us out. Um, yeah, that's probably accurate. I think I... Because I've seen some of the tasks that you've given Scott. <laughs> and like the like the stuff that he comes back after a weekend and he's like, okay, I got it. Mm-hmm. That to me is like jaw-dropping sometimes. Right? Me too, like, yeah. When we, find, uh, when we see new verticals, yeah. And then we're like, okay, let's take a look at the technology from this lens. Mm-hmm. And then Scott, it like just, he's just like, okay, this is it. Mm-hmm. And here it is. Yeah. Sometimes there's some back and forth there, but yeah. Um, one way I think we've described it in pitches, our soft skills and our hard skills really complement each other. And I've considered if we, if it's because we sort of grew up together that, that kept us from, 
um, developing those skills individually. Um, I, I wonder if we'd never met how that would look, but you, you're correct. We definitely twin talk a little bit and we have this, okay, that's, that's your avenue. You, you run with it. Um, I'm definitely more social than Scott and more outgoing. So I'm, I'm the bubbly let's figure and he it out. loves that he doesn't have to do that part because you do it so well. <laughs> yeah, he definitely would rather me do it. Um, you're very lucky you got him on your podcast because he pretty much won't do media. I don't know how. Well, it just got decided. I, I thought that was special too. Like, yeah. he, like he's been on twice, and yeah. uh, this is a guy that would never be on a podcast. No. And so I thought I know that he does it for me. You know. Yeah. <laughs> we used to do media together, but unfortunately, like a lot of the the questions would get posed at him and he was like I don't want to do this anymore you just do it and then they can't even ask me anything um so back to what you're saying how we work yeah I would say like we used to talk about it as like I'm a big thinker and um not that he isn't but I you know did a lot of imaginative play when I was little Scott was on a computer at four and was video gaming in text-based games so he was doing text-based play while I was doing, Hey everyone, we're going to Narnia and let's, you know, I was very imaginative. We'll just put it. Same thing that like exploration on your side. And then like he would find a way to participate. Yeah. He could have built Narnia. (laughs) Whereas I was painting it for everyone on the playground. Um, I did find out later that none of them had read Narnia. They just had, they were following whatever game I was putting at them. Um, But Uh, So I was always like definitely a leader and people would just follow my game. Um, But I wouldn't say that it's necessarily me finding the problems though. I think like we brainstorm over it. I remember, so our, you know, our company was founded at CES in an Irish pub. Um, And that was that year. There was a lot of 3D printers. Um, Eureka Park was pretty uninspired. And I think I was just like, oh, this isn't fun. Like, what would be fun? Let's talk about what's fun. What would be interesting? And there was a brainstorming session. So it wasn't all me, but I definitely take things to the next level and then, Hey, we're going to go and do this. And all of a sudden we're running down a street and he's following me and there's some people following and there becomes a crowd running. (laughs) So that's something that I've seen. And I also find amazing. Like uh, you can see a little bit of what Chandra does really well is if they ever tell us that there's no, not enough room for us in a restaurant. Like I've literally seen you walk in, talk to the person at the front and then go and orchestrate the entire staff to rearrange tables so that there would be enough for everybody. And that's something that I find uh, really compelling is, is that when you go somewhere, the reason that everyone recognizes you as a leader is they all go along, me included. Right? Yeah. You Why is that? I've place. always wondered that because people are like, what makes a good leader? And I, I always say like just leading by example. But why would you say people follow me as someone who has? Uh, because there's uh, um, you could definitely go three questions deep on anything that we have. So like mm-hmm. why we're doing this, what's going to be the goal at the end? You really target um, you choose targets very well. Mm hmm. The way that you pass by the ones that are window dressing to actually see the essence is something that's really neat. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, is like your your network is evidence of it. You know, uh, success leaves clues. Okay. And when you take a look at the amount of people that respond to you, that like magnetic element that you have, oh, the, nice the neatest thing is, is that they're not just they're not just a uh, like attracted to what you're talking about or even mm-hmm. your it's not just uh 
that you're inspired, right? Mm -hmm. Those people actually move into action, which is something that I see them not do in the majority of cases where it's the same thing. Hmm. How do you feel as though you get mislabeled in that case? Like, I know you reject some things. Like, you reject, like, uh, um, being gender classified as a CEO. Yeah. Why do I uh, reject that or what? What do you think? Do what do you think that that label isn't like something that's like. I think it's patronizing. Tell me more. <laughs> so I'm not a female CEO. Um, I feel like, and you know, the Me Too movement was really important. And one of my, um, my investors' partners started it. And I think it's amazing. Um, but that almost put a light on to females in other industries that was a little patronizing and, and not that it wasn't important. I think it was really important that that happened, but I don't identify as a female CEO. I just identify as a CEO. Um, and I wouldn't say that I've had any ceilings that I've hit, um, personally, that being said, I founded the company. There isn't any ceiling that I wouldn't have put in place for me to hit. So I'm in a privileged position there. Um, but, at, at the time, a lot of the questions I was getting and a lot of the speaking engagements I was being offered was, tell us, we want you to speak as a CE, a female CEO. Tell us what a, CE, a female CEO um, struggles with. And they're the same things anyone struggles with, like any CEO. I, I'm just a CEO. My struggles are the same. Fundraising, figuring out what next steps are, figuring out, you know, what verticals are most important. And, you know, I would say all CEOs probably deal with those the same way as you, you look to your advisors and your mentors and your network to, to, to identify your solutions. Um, what other, you asked me, what other words do I reject? I think. Yeah, what, what, where do people like um, misclassify you or try to mislabel you? I know that that's probably one of the largest ones that you're like, and I, and I honestly think that um you wouldn't want a separate division. You would want to go toe to toe with the best, regardless yeah. of what gender they are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I used to be annoyed when when people didn't, you know, know who we were. Maybe when we were like early days, and I'm like, oh, I have a patent in all of this. Like, why don't people know who we are? Um, but you know, that wasn't that didn't last very long. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I think people's opinion of you doesn't really reflect on you. So that doesn't, I don't, I wouldn't say I got offended, but I used to really reject that question when they say, you know, tell us about being a female CEO. And I'd say, well, it's just like being a male CEO. <laughs> like you're, it's, or a female founder. Mm. How, how is it, how is it different being a female founder? And first of all, I mean, how would I know? Because I'm, that's the perception I have. And that's the perspective I'm coming from. So that was a really hard question to ask, but I found it kind of patronizing. And I, I thought a better way to be, if you want to showcase female CEOs, just showcase them. Don't ask them about that specific question to highlight that you're focusing on them. Now this question, um, I want to go into a different direction because there's a lot of people that are trying to access this type of information. Like, okay. you know, how you got me that, uh, uh Chris Ferry book that was written with, uh, Worley. Oh, Worley. Yeah. 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 The yeah. Yeah. Quantum. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, understanding yeah. quantum computers. And then I had yeah. two year olds that were using the word qubit. I love it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, that was something that was amazing. And I want to do the same thing and kind of break down something. Can you answer a very entry-level question of what is augmented reality? Hmm. 
entry level. Okay. Um, augmented reality is anything you're augmenting. Um, so right now people are talking about being a visual thing, but you know, really sound is an augment to reality. So if you're listening to a podcast and jogging, you're augmenting your reality with that. Um, does that answer you? Anything, anything overlaying on reality? Yeah. So as soon as we started to, uh, you know, wear a Walkman, things were starting to shift and change around us. Yeah. Now we're moving into this visual level. And for some reason that seems to be like what they see is like a quantum leap. Yeah. So I'll give you an example of that. Yes, exactly. So we gave ourselves our own personal soundtrack when the Walkman came about in like the eighties. I had one, you know, the, the yellow Sony one. That's probably had the same one. What was the, what was the cassette tape in yours most often? Oh, Mariah Carey, maybe. (laughs) I was like nine, so or the Beaches soundtrack, maybe like Bette Midler. But you know, Mm -hmm. then we had our own soundtrack to our own movie, you know, and that was our own life was our own movie. You're the starring role, right? Now we have a visual soundtrack we can add to things which is which is visual augmented reality and that's you know people i think the most relatable is pokemon go where you'll have like a computer component visually in there but you know a visual soundtrack is what we have now yeah so that's something that uh we're seeing more and more like at airports and things like that now there's these screens that from different angles will show different things and that's again an augmented reality and pokemon go was like a window into augmented reality right yeah and now well, it is augmented reality because you'd have the phone and you'd be able to see the Pokemon at the park or whatever. Yeah. And that's yeah. something that we're going to continue to kind of push the border on. Yeah. And when you talk about augmented reality and surgery, instead mm-hmm. of Pokemon Go, what are you what are you describing? Um, so the quick pitch for for augmented reality and VR was like, we were the Google maps for surgeons. So they could make the map and do it in VR, practice it in VR, and then overlay it in AR. So virtual reality is when you're completely immersed in a different world and you have a headset on and you can't see any of the current world. AR is when you have a set of glasses on and you see some of the video game in your world. Um, So then you would overlay those same images that you've made the map in on the patient. So you would actually see where my heart was, my lungs were, because we're as different on the outside as we are on the inside. You know, like you and I both have eyes and a nose, but they're, they're put in different places on our face. Same thing with your organs. So it gives doctors a true x-ray vision of where to cut and where not to cut. That's awesome. And uh, I really appreciate that that was something that you choose to uh, proceed in because it's a spectrum of augmented reality to virtual reality. You can like dial it up in different cases. Even the fact that virtual reality often shows where the confines of your room is. Yeah. Is reality kind of creeping into virtual reality. Yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah. And so thinking about a future where your surgeon could essentially dial up how much they want to see of the inside of you. Mm-hmm. And just like Google Maps, go from map view to terrain view and look mm-hmm. at your circulatory system or your bone structure. Yeah. Where are we going to hit an artery here? Oh, they're starting to bleed out. We need to see what's under there so we know what we're doing. Um, just more information, right? Um, a, a surgeon essentially is a driver who needs to go somewhere. Um, and you said it, like, and I've actually quoted 
you through me when people say, you know, what do you think it's going to be like in 10 years? And I, I think doctors are going to say, I can't believe I used to cut in blind because it's really what they're doing. Yeah, that's something that's incredible. And what a worthwhile thing to solve. Chandra, I could go on for a long time, but we have reached our episode end. Yes. And I really appreciate you coming on. I think that yeah. we're going to go again. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Well, this has been Leadership Line of Sight. I am here with Chandra Devam. She is the CEO and co-founder of ErisMD and someone who's leading the way for this startup and so many others. For the people out there that are thinking that their, may, their next steps might be into the unknown, that there are no steps in front of them, I would definitely have to say that you can find Chandra in places like LinkedIn, and mm -hmm. she is an incredibly bright light to follow. Thanks again for joining us today.